0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. There are two images of God presented, us to, presented to us today from sacred scriptures. One is the image of God as a shepherd, and the other is the image of God seated on the throne of judgment. Now, one might wonder what the connection between these two seemingly opposite Opposing images of God have to do with each other. One obvious connection is that it is the same God who both shepherds us during life and judges us after death. And they're not necessarily contradictory. Shepherding connotes kindness and mercy, while judgment connotes justice and truth. This God, who is both a shepherd and a judge, is both merciful and just. His mercy is not unjust, and His justice is not unkind. While we might find it difficult or impossible to be merciful and to be just at once, God does not. Because this concept is often seen as a juxtaposition, there has been a tendency throughout the history of the Church to separate these two attributes of God. We either overemphasize the judgment of God, neglecting the importance of God's mercy, or we tend to overemphasize God's mercy at the cost of making God's judgment irrelevant. The truth is, neither of these extreme positions convey what sacred tradition and sacred scripture teaches us. As a result, we have muddled an accurate understanding of God. Many of us subscribe to a false representation of God that, that has its roots in a heresy called Pelagianism. Pelagianism is a heretical teaching that originated in the 5th century. People who subscribe to this error sees, the, sees original, the original sin of Adam merely as a bad example and not something that has corrupted our human nature. Therefore, if we follow this logic, all we have to do is to choose to follow Christ's good example. Baptism is also not seen as necessary because it is simply seen as a confirmation of one's choice rather than a requirement for sanctifying grace which enables us to participate in the life of God and in the life of heaven. Now, even though the, this position has been repeatedly condemned by the church in the past centuries, this heresy is still very much alive today. For example, there are parents, some parents who grew up Catholic, and would not think twice about delaying or denying their children baptism, often for trivial reasons. At best, some might wait until they are old enough to make a choice. This goes against what our Lord Himself commanded His disciples in the 28th chapter of Matthew when He said, "'Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I have commanded you. It also denies the reality that baptism confers on us sanctifying grace, which is necessary to be born again with Christ and becoming a new creation, as taught by St. Paul and as we affirmed in our second reading today also from St. Paul. The Church, therefore, has taught from the very beginning that baptism is necessary for salvation. And so for parents to deliberately deny or delay a child's baptism for no serious reason is an outright rejection of God's commands and a sinful pride that cries to heaven. This is why I would like to acknowledge and applaud our parents and godparents today for bringing their children for baptism, because they obviously see the importance and the significance of this sacrament. Pelagianism also rears its ugly head in our modern thinking. Whenever Christians hold attitudes such as denying the seriousness of sins and the need for repentance, going to confession and conversion, or persevering in one's spiritual life, and not just occasionally going to Mass or going through the motions of being Catholic. We make a mockery of our faith, and we endanger our souls to eternal punishment. Even some of the approach taken by Christians and other Christian churches are plagued with Pelagianism. For example, success is often measured not so much infidelity to the Word of God, the commandments, sound doctrine, and calling others to repentance, but instead on how many we can attract to the Church or make it more appealing. As a result, Church leaders and ministers think of nothing of watering down traditional Church doctrine and sacred scriptures in order to make it less offensive and more appealing to the wider audience. While these approaches are well-intentioned, it is not without consequences. The intermingling of contemporary culture has led many to turn away from God, His Word, and the Church. Unfaithful Christians, including the clergy, have allowed God's Word and the teachings of the Church to become blurred and confused. Parents have timidly allowed their children to adopt the thinking and the behavior of this world with little or no consequence or discipline. As a result, we have only managed to drive away many Catholics from their traditional faith as they seek and find community and sound teaching elsewhere. But it must also be equally said that Catholics who have left the Church and moved on to seek support elsewhere, especially in evangelical churches, have heavily relied and become dependent on emotional experiences and social opportunities to affirm their faith. Seeking these emotional highs and opportunities have become an idol. Going to church becomes more of an opportunity to meet one's emotional, social, and political needs rather than an opportunity to evaluate social to evaluate our lives in the light of God's commandments and the teachings of the Church, as well as an invitation for repentance and conversion. Someday, those needs will no longer be met effectively, and it will likely lead those who have left the Catholic Church to move on to the next best thing. This is why our Catholic faith cannot rely on the spirit of the age. We cannot simply rely on emotional highs, social opportunities, media soundbite sermons, shallow programs, gimmicks, innovations, and political agendas, which are some of the passing things of this world, to affirm and strengthen our faith. We cannot even, sadly, always rely on the holiness of the members of the Church, including the clergy who are sometimes corrupted by sin. While I am not denying our need to employ every tool we have to draw people to Christ, and while Christian witness of the people and the clergy are all invaluable, indispensable to the spread of the gospel, nevertheless, we cannot make an idol of innovations and of people. We would be committing the sin of idolatry. Rather, we must set our gaze and rely on on what Christ has spoken and established. We must rely on Him, the Good Shepherd, to guide and watch over us. We must rely on His infallible Word and on Him who established the Church upon the rock of Peter, the first pope, to whom he guaranteed that the gates of hell will not prevail against the Catholic Church." We must rely for guidance on the sacred deposit of faith and entrusted to the Catholic Church. And above all, we must find strength, healing, consolation in the sacraments that Jesus himself established, especially Jesus who is present to us and feeds us with his most precious body and blood in the Eucharist. As we celebrate today the Feast of Christ the King, let us never ever forget, and may it penetrate our minds and our hearts, that there is nowhere else will we ever find the Eucharist, the true body and blood of Christ, our food for the journey, than in the Catholic Church. No program, no sermon, no gimmick, no agenda, no branding techniques, No musical concerts, no flashy worship service, no coffee social can ever, ever compare, nor can it ever replace Jesus himself in the Blessed Sacrament. As we conclude Mass today with a procession and benediction of the Blessed Sacrament on this Feast of Christ the King, we will commemorate this feast not with fancy light shows and catchy tunes, but with our Lord and Savior Himself walking in our midst in the Blessed Sacrament. And praise God for that. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.